0: Hey friends, this is Michael Carey and welcome back to the Living Truth Podcast. Our guest for today's show is Jay Stringer. Jay's a therapist, author and speaker who guides men and women to outgrow unwanted sexual behavior. And he wrote an incredible book that I love called Unwanted. So Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Michael, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, awesome. And um, so the book Unwanted, I just wanted to um, confirm, is the title meant to say unwanted sexual behaviors? Is that why you named it Unwanted?
1: Yes. A uh, little bit of a double entendre that, you know, there a lot of times we feel unwanted in the midst of our sexual brokenness. And again, not to say that we don't have wanted sexual behavior from time to time when we're lonely, when we're angry. But I think if you ask the majority of men and women at the end of the day, uh, if they want to stay participating in that behavior, that's where they would say, it's an unwanted dimension of my life. And so unwanted was, uh, yeah, to really hone in on I think sex addiction is one of those things that's entirely overdiagnosed, but I think a lot of times people can agree to, uh, I might not be an addict, but uh, I do have some dimensions of my life that are unwanted. And I think if you start with inviting people to see, is there any behavior fantasies that are unwanted in your life. I think they're much more amenable to change and being able to be honest versus trying to corner them with some type of, you're an addict. Do you see how wrong you are? Uh, you need a recovery process, go to a meeting in the church basement. So, um, really wanted to invite people to consider if there's any dimension of their life that's unwanted.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, so, what uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you came uh, to decide to write this book? Sure. What that story, uh, like, yeah. So, I'll
1: I'll tell two stories, uh, both uh, professional and personal. So, uh, personal would be uh, I grew up as a. PK. My dad was a pastor, and so a lot of times he was the pastor of a smaller Presbyterian church. And then people would try and reach out to my dad uh, at his church office. And then if they couldn't get a hold of him, they would call uh, our home. And we rarely, if ever, picked up the the phone at our house. So almost all calls went right to the answering machine. Uh, this is obviously. Pre-cell phones, uh, mm. and so I can remember just a lot of times where people in my church would leave messages in the midst of crisis, and so that could have been, you know, suicidality. That could be uh, a spouse discovering porn. One of the most significant ones for me was hearing that an from an elder's wife had called my dad saying, "I just realized that my husband, the elder in my dad's church, had just committed an affair." and uh, could just kind of see my dad go into crisis mode, could watch my mom go into crisis mode. And so just it really seeing uh, that so many people, especially in the church, are far more honest in their sexual behaviors than they are on Sunday mornings. And so that always intrigued me of why is it that our failures often tell the truth so much more than you might experience within a sermon, within a Sunday school class. Uh, So that really intrigued me. And I just thought of another personal story that I'll tell uh, that informs why I wrote the book as well. Uh, When I got to high school, uh, I went to a Southern Baptist uh, high school, and it's not an experience that I would recommend for anyone going through puberty. Um, And what I'm about to say is just uh, it's a really bad metaphor. And I would say that this is just true of most people within Uh, the church is that they've grown up with language that either says, just don't, uh, don't have sex, don't think about it until you get married. And then they tell us this illusion that the moment that you get married, all your sexual behavior, brokenness is just all going to go away. No one ever tells the truth that actually marriage and ministry are going to intensify your unwanted sexual behaviors, not reduce them. So mm-hmm. uh, I can yeah. remember sitting in a chapel uh, my junior year of high school, and there was a, a guest teacher that came in from a very conservative uh, university in Virginia. And he said, he started telling the story and he said, You know, the Inuit people, the way that they would try and kill wolves would be they would dip a dagger into seal's blood, and then they would leave this uh, dagger outside of the camp. And then the, the wolf would come in and start licking the seal blood, but then not realize that there's a dagger underneath the seal, the frozen seal blood, and then it would start to kind of cut its own tongue and then the blood would intermix with the seal's blood, the wolf blood. And then in the morning, you would have mm. a, a dead wolf outside the camp. Mm. And uh, it was terrifying. <laughs> wow. But he turned to all of us, came down from the stage, looked at all of us and said, some of you are out there masturbating and it feels good. But like the dead wolf or not like the dead wolf, uh, he just said, you know, in the morning, you're going to be dead. Uh, Whatever you find pleasurable is going to kill your ministry. It's going to kill your marriage. Uh, And so let's be honest and accountable with one another about our masturbation life. And I, you know, I was a junior. I had some sense of like, this, this is not okay. But I remember looking behind me at all of the, it was a seventh through 12th grade chapel and just seeing these (laughs) middle schoolers that were completely horrified and there was always something about that in, you know, growing up around the church where you just hear all of these analogies, metaphors and similes that are just terrible, that are really intended to scare people um, and to suppress sexual desire. Right. Well, then, you know, I get into being around the Seattle area. And I would say that there is just a lot of progressive approaches to dealing with unwanted sexual behavior where they make shame and stigma the primary issues. And uh, it turns out that just trying to remove the shame associated with your sexual choices isn't gonna lead to freedom either. And so I think that's what I started seeing more and more is that most approaches to human sexuality are either about trying to suppress unwanted sexual behavior of kind of bouncing your eyes. I I call it lust management. And that would be, you know, you slap a rubber band around your wrist, you get some accountability software, internet monitoring, and you just try and suppress that sexual lust uh, whenever it comes up. Or their shame management of just kind of, let's just get rid of the shame. Uh, Let's try and remove stigma. And I wanted in unwanted to really carve out a third way to be able to really engage our unwanted sexual behavior. So to do that, I I did some research on about 4,000 men and women to get a sense of what were the primary stories that were driving their involvement with unwanted sexual behavior. So a lot of the research that's being done basically tells us what we already know, like 56%, 57% of our pastors, 64% of our youth pastors are struggling with porn, two thirds of people in the church are struggling Mm -hmm. with porn. So we know a lot about the reality that we all watch porn and struggle with sexual brokenness, but we don't really Mm -hmm. know what is the why that's driving that. And so through this research, I don't want to unpack it all right now, but essentially what we found was that unwanted sexual behavior down to the exact sexual fantasies that we seek out on the internet could be shaped and predicted based on the parts of our story that remained unaddressed. And so the the core thesis of unwanted is that uh, your sexual brokenness is not a life sentence to shame or addiction, it is a roadmap to healing. And so that's what I want to invite people into considering is could it be that your sexual brokenness actually contains the keys to the freedom that you've been waiting your whole life to find?
0: Hmm. Yes. Thanks so much for spelling that out. Um, wow. Wow. A lot, a lot in that story, in those stories, Jay. Thanks. So that hopefully and- I didn't
1: traumatize people too much with no. those flashbacks.
0: <laughs> i'm st- I'm still thinking I'm still thinking about the dead wolf, man. I'm like, yes <laughs> but those scare tactics, for sure, mm-hmm. is just it's a means of control, you know yes it's a way of controlling people. And um, that's what so many people and and I know that I've done this as a parent as well, uh, where you know when sometimes when I don't know what to do, I freeze, I control. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I result to that. and then, yes, hopefully later on, I realize what I've done, and I'm like, oh, crap I have to go back and fix that right yes. but that's it when we don't know what to do you know that's one of the tactics that we mm-hmm. go, that a lot of people go to is control right mm-hmm. so and and that you kind of spell this out you, the uh, subtitle of your book how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing you know that uh, that's profound so it can actually provide a roadmap um, to the healing process what it is that we fantasized in or, or the kind of porn that we've looked at and so on. And, um, this, I found this to be really interesting and I'd love it if you explain this statement in your book, sexual behavior, sinful sexual behavior is not about a desire for too much sex. It's actually against sex. Can you tell me what that means?
1: Sure. Uh, So whenever, you know, Paul, the Bible's chief theologian talks about the nature of sin, it's always in reference to what it's against. So so sin is anti-law, it's anti-righteousness. And so in many ways, I would say sexual brokenness is against sex. It's anti-sex. Uh, so if we look at the root word of sex, it's taken from the Latin word sicare uh, which means to sever or to amputate from the whole. And so our sexuality then is this awareness that we are severed. We are broken uh, in relationship from God and from others. And our sexuality is part of the way that we go about reconnecting. And so when you think about something like pornography, well, one of the things that my research found was is that a man struggling with a lack of purpose was seven times more likely to pursue pornography. And so again, to really think about what's the psychological, spiritual condition of this man? Well, he's feeling stuck. Uh, he lacks purpose. And so then he goes to pornography and what ends up happening is he actually feels even more severed from uh, relationships. And so just that sense of he pursued uh, unwanted sexual behavior and he found himself even more disconnected than when he began and I think that's really what the heartbeat of uh, sexual brokenness, pornography, buying sex, extramarital affairs is that they actually bring in more and more severing and so when you look at something like John ten ten, what is what does that say the thief comes to steal to kill and to destroy and so anytime that we see Uh, evil messing with something, the only power that evil actually has is to twist and to malign that which God has made good. And so, uh, so much of just the debris of our sexual life is really not this pursuit of beauty, but far more this pursuit of a behavior uh, that makes us feel more disconnected, more ashamed of who we are, uh, and less capable of pursuing a life of integrity. And and that's where I think we have to step into the reality that our pursuit of things like porn are actually against, uh, the sex that we would claim that we actually want to
0: have. Mm -hmm. Because it pushes us farther and farther away from, um, the good, healthy marital sex. And Mm -hmm. yes, we know, um, we know that God's way is always better. Right. But when you really actually experience the wholeness and the goodness in there, um, it really is <laughs> so mm-hmm. much better, and and I've tried it both ways, and I really recommend God's way, um, but not not out of um, control and shame and some of the things we talked about before, but just that mm-hmm. idea that uh, it really is better. It's it, it really is better for me, and it feels better. It 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 uh, um, yeah, it is better. Mm-hmm. So. So yeah, we talk a lot about shame and stuff, and you mentioned um, that word a few times. Uh, just for our listeners, I wondered if you can tell us in your own words, like what is the definition of shame? What does that really mean? Mm-hmm. We <laughs> think about being ashamed, you know, or you should be ashamed of yourself, and all these, you know. But um, yeah, what do you what are you talking about when you say shame?
1: Sure. So I would say shame is this uh, really painful experience that something that I have done or failed to do uh, makes me unwanted uh, or unworthy of love or belonging. And that's a, a riff. I forget exactly what Brene Brown says, but it's something very similar. It's this painful experience that something about me is unworthy of love. And so when you really begin to step into that, especially from a psychological standpoint, uh, the neuropsychologist, Dr. Alan Shore, refers to shame as he kind of uses this analogy of Uh, Like if you've ever driven a a manual transmission car before, you know that there's three pedals. You got the accelerator, the brake and the clutch. And what Alan Shore says is that when we are growing up, we have what's called a sympathetic nervous system, which is basically just go into the world and explore everything. It's when you see like a toddler crawling around the ground, putting Legos in his or her mouth, uh, trying to lift up rocks, to see what bugs are inside. Uh, There's something about us that is intended to go into the world uh, to just explore. But we also need to have a break. Uh, We need the ability for someone in our life to say, no, uh, actually don't eat that plant. Uh, Don't touch that snake. Uh, Don't uh, go outside without looking both ways. When you cross the street, you're going to get run over. Uh, But what Alan Shore says is that when we have a parent or Let's say a faith community uh, that sees our accelerator, our desire to explore, to try and pursue beauty, and they slam on that brake. Well, what happens with a manual transmission car is that the the, the engine actually shears off. And so, what we experience mm-hmm. there is that shearing off effect of shame. And so, one example of this would be when my son was about two or three years old, uh, he would always want if we were having. Water he would want a water glass if we were drinking a glass of wine or a cocktail, he would want a wine glass, or when I came back from a camping trip and had a flask, he wanted the flask filled with almond milk and so he you know just any any beverage we were drinking at any time he just wanted to mirror that with juice or milk of some kind. so it was Thanksgiving, we were having a meal, and he saw us drinking uh, out of a, a wine glass. And he went into the kitchen uh, to, with, you know, a wine glass, and we didn't, we couldn't see him from the angle that we had in the living room. But we started hearing a lot of metal uh, tinkering around in the kitchen. So my brother-in-law got up to go and check on him. He rounds the corner and he sees a three-year-old with a, a nine-inch uh, butcher knife in his hand, trying to open up the pull tab on a milk. Carton and said, Amos, stop! And about a second later, you know, we heard the butcher knife fall down to the ground. And then he ran to my wife and just kind of buried himself in her chest. And that that sense of what happened there was that he was hitting the accelerator. He was trying to join in the festivities, doing something really beautiful and good. But then that break had to be applied. But then that break was applied in a way that in that moment didn't need a lot of attunement didn't need a lot of grace. It's just like, don't stab yourself. But for Mm -hmm. a lot of us, when Mm -hmm. we maybe explored, when we saw porn for the first time, or maybe we were really angry at something that was actually unjust in our family system, instead of having a parent to actually attune to us and bring in a clutch of just saying, hey, I I understand your anger here. Uh, Your brother did something that was awful. Or let's say you had a really difficult moment in middle school and you had a parent Say, hey, I, I know that you're irritable today. And I'm I'm guessing, you know, that really hard day that you had in middle school is affecting you. And so I, I want you to know kindness today. But most of what we experience is a really harsh break in our life of don't do that. You did something profoundly wrong there, and you are. Uh, should be ashamed of yourself and so that shearing off effect is really what we experience psychologically that there's you know anytime I do something wrong, I don't need God or a parent to shear that off I actually do it to myself now. Um, simultaneously, when we look at shame theologically, a lot of the Old Testament would be, you know, we are going to experience shame if we place our trust in something uh, that is not the God of the universe. And so anytime we lean on any behavior outside of, God outside of meaningful relationships to get us through life, we might experience shame because we trusted in something that was not actually worthy of our trust. And so I think that's what I don't see the conversation talking enough about with regard to shame is that a lot of times, Mm -hmm. if I don't know how to work through the crucibles in my marriage, but then I pursue an affair, well, what have I done? I have. I have exited the crucible of whatever tension conflict I need to engage in my marriage. And then I have trusted in an extramarital affair to get me out of that bind. Well, then I'm going to feel shame, not just because I've done something immoral, but because I've actually put my trust in something like an affair or pornography. So I think both definitions are really important for us to understand that we, we feel shame because of failed attachments uh, with, meaningful people in our life, but we also can feel shame because we know that we've put our trust in something that was never meant uh, to guide us through the difficulties in our life.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, Very profound. Thanks so much. Um, Yeah, I I love that you said, yeah, it's not talked about enough, the theological piece to it. And, um, what are we attaching ourselves to? I remember reading several different books on that. Uh, One of them, I think was Gerald May's book, Addiction and Grace. And what are we attaching (laughs) ourselves to? Because we're supposed to attach ourselves to God and then in healthy relationships. And, um, and that segue into this question that I had next for you too. And you, you said, um, in your book, we're not addicted primarily to sex, but instead we're addicted to feelings of shame and judgment. Mm-hmm. What is that? Uh, what is that about?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a big paradigm shift. Uh, and I would say that most, when you look at most addiction, uh, sex therapy, uh, sex addiction therapy, or just most theological conversations, you might hear something along the lines of. I was just bored, or this was something that I was doing for coping, or this is just something that I was doing for self-medicating. And I, I think that that's true. You'll never hear me say that that's untrue. But I think that actually conceals so much more of what's actually playing out in the human heart. So, Oftentimes, let's say I feel like I have no purpose in my life or I feel really ashamed of who I am. What ends up happening in our compulsive behaviors is that we actually go to pursue even more evidence in the court of law against ourselves. And so, you know, if I'm not feeling terribly regulated and I I dislike my body the way it looks, very likely I'm going to pursue maybe a a type of food that reinforces judgment against myself. And then guess what I feel? Well, now I don't just feel unwanted because of my sexual behavior. Now I also feel unwanted because I ate a half carton of ice cream in the midst of my shame. And so just that sense of we have to engage that all addictive behavior, all compulsive behavior is a relief from the agony and the misery of life, but it's also the reinforcement of the agony and the disappointment of life. Right. And so a lot of times people just say, you know, I, d- I can't stop self-medicating. And it's like, but you've done this behavior 1037 times. And in 1036 times, you actually felt terrible about yourself after. And so I think that's really what we have to step into is We're pursuing behaviors far more for the purpose of judgment against ourselves than just mere pleasure. So a lot of the research that I did back this up in that uh, men who pursued unwanted sexual behavior were 300 times more likely to keep pursuing more pornography for each unit increase in the shame that they were experiencing. And women were 546 times more likely to pursue more porn for each level unit. Uh, of shame that they were experiencing. So just that core premise, that shame, not pleasure drives our compulsive choices. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to just part of that question of what are we supposed to do with our shame? Well, part of what I would say what happens to most of us is that we try to uh, run from shame. We try to turn our backs from it. We're always trying to build up other evidence of I might binge with my porn life, but then I'm gonna kind of purge it all out through looking like a really good spiritual father or mother. Uh, and mm-hmm. all that does is really help us to keep running from it. And so what I'm trying to argue and Unwanted is just how do we begin to turn and face our shame? to get super specific about these are the sexual fantasies that I keep pursuing Uh, and to be curious. I use this phrase, uh, listen to your lust uh, of being able to, instead of just trying to escape shame, uh, I want us to look right at it and to say, what are the problems? What are the fantasies that are most prevalent in my life and how can those fantasies and sexual behaviors actually teach us a lot about what needs to heal within us
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that is so true how we try and run away from it and cover it up and pretend that it doesn't exist you know And, um, the interesting thing is once we get vulnerable and we start talking about it, we realize that everyone else struggles with shame as well. It's a human experience rather than a personal experience that I just have for myself. But, um, Precisely, yeah. like the like the shark in the ocean. When we're swimming away from the shark, you know, and we mm-hmm. we become the the bait. Uh, but turning around and swimming toward the shark, did you did you mention that in unwanted? I that a I story? Did. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh huh,
1: yeah, it's a great story uh, from. Uh, his his name is Andy Casagrande, and he is the videographer for the show Shark Week, uh for on the Discovery Channel. And so he was interviewed a couple of years ago, and he just said they, they asked him, Andy, what do you do when you're in the waters with a great white shark? Again, no cage. And he said it's really counterintuitive, but you swim right at the shark with the camera. And so what ends up happening is the shark swims, hits its nose against the camera lens, realizes that it's not food. And then again, if you are a great white shark, you're used to everything in the ocean, maybe except for an orca whale swimming away from you. So when something's (laughs) swimming towards you and you don't know what it is, you're going to have a fear response. And so what Andy says is that uh, the it will trigger a a defense mechanism in the shark and the shark will swim away. And that's when he makes his escape. And he goes on to say, if you do not act like prey, they will not treat you like prey. And I think that has so much to do to teach us about the nature of shame in our lives that, all of us have great white memories of, and great white shame of our pornography history, infidelity, buying sex, but far more, we have a lot of stories uh, from our own past sexual abuse. We have a lot of stories from just the hell of middle school and what that abuse or bullying brought into our lives. And so that's really what we want to do is, you know, you're exactly right, Michael, like alone, we think that we are really unique in our struggle and yet in turning to face our shame and telling others about it, we really begin to grapple with the reality that uh, themes like abuse, heartache, misery, broken family systems, are far more common in our world than we would ever like to like to assume.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thanks for spelling that out. Mm-hmm. Yes, and this question I had for you about this vicious cycle that you mentioned in Chapter 8 of Unwanted, futility, dissociation, mm-hmm. anger, lust, Deprivation, unconscious sexual arousal. I know that there's quite a bit there, so I don't expect you to unpack yeah. all of it. Okay. But just a few comments of what what is it that this uh, that this is about that you're talking about in chapter eight? Okay,
1: yeah. Let me address uh, sexual arousal and lust and anger. Does that sound good? We'll take three yeah. of the six building blocks. Right. So, yes. uh, you know, mm-hmm. we we've talked a little bit about just the nature of that specifics with regard to our porn fantasies or sexual brokenness and so one of the things that my research looked at was depending on what type of pornography you looked at or what type of an affair anonymous or with someone that you knew or the type of sex that you pursued to buy could those things be shaped if not fully predicted based on our life story and what we found out is that they actually could so let me give you a couple examples uh, for one, we found that let's say that you were a man who wanted to see a blonde uh, or a college student or a teenager or maybe a race that suggested to you some level of subservience, if, if that was what you found sexually arousing, that sexual fantasy could be shaped. Uh, and predicted by three categories. One was that this man was dealing with a lot of lack of purpose in his life. The second was that he had a very strict father growing up and he was dealing with high levels of, of shame. And so when you begin to unpack that and just think about the psychological profile of a man who's pursuing and college students. Well, part of what you'll begin to see is that his father powered over him, uh, very much used rigidity and control in order to dominate that that man as a child. And he's also dealing with a lot of lack of purpose in his life, meaning that he looks back at his life and sees a lot of failure. He doesn't know how to direct his life to the ultimate desires of his heart. And so he's really struggling with purpose and knowing how to get something done. And he's feeling really ashamed of himself. Well, guess what he's going to seek out in his sexual fantasy life? He's gonna reverse that power imbalance by now being able to have power over another human being. And instead of feeling like a lack of purpose, like I don't know how to get something done, pornography creates a world where he cannot fail. He can get exactly what he wants whenever he wants it. And that's Mm -hmm. what I'm inviting people to do with this kind of uh, sexual arousal template is what we call it in the field of being able to be really curious about your sexual fantasies. Or let's say that you are a woman who... Uh, felt like your needs were not being met in your life. Well, that woman was nearly five times more likely to pursue an anonymous affair. So that's not just saying that her husband or her community needs to be more attentive to her. Well, a lot of times in the church, especially we create virtue out of women not having much of a voice or having much of their own desire. So this could be like an Enneagram to like the helper where it's become virtuous to just not express your needs or not to engage them. Well, that's back to that core point of many times our sexual life is far more honest than, than we are. And so that's where I would invite both men and women to see sexual fantasies and their sexual behaviors and to kind of say how is my sexual brokenness uh, revealing something about what needs to heal within me and instead of outsourcing that to a sexual fantasy how can I have the integrity to address some of the pain and the heartache within so uh, that's one of those categories in my book is really inviting people to see their, their sexual arousal. And instead of just feeling shame uh, to get really, really curious about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so, and then the other two categories, I would say lust mm-hmm. and anger. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we see a lot in the field is just whenever anybody talks about their sexual brokenness, they always use the language of lust or some level of, right. kind of you know, lust gone mad, or just, i, I some, something along those lines. And what I invite people to really think about is like, let's imagine unwanted sexual behavior as a river, like no different than the Mississippi River. And so one of the reasons why the Mississippi is so powerful isn't just because it's one river, but far more because there's a lot of tributaries that flow into it. So we have the Missouri, we have the, I think the Allegheny, uh, Arkansas, Tennessee, mm-hmm. anyways, there's a lot of rivers that flow into that. So right. if you're trying to stop the Mississippi, and you're only trying to stop the Tennessee River, let's say, well, mm-hmm. you've done almost nothing to stop the flow of the Mississippi. And, and that's what I would say has happened an evangelicalism, especially is that we've, we've said, well, let's bounce our eyes, let's install internet monitoring, let's uh, give people mm-hmm. tips and techniques to manage their lust. And guess what, what? They still struggle. And I think this goes back to Matthew five, where Jesus says, all of us have committed adultery, meaning covetousness. Uh, it's the Mm -hmm. Greek word epithumeo. But if you go up a couple verses earlier, Jesus also says that all of us are also guilty of murder, that when we are angry with someone else, uh, we kill. And that's where James four picks up, uh, Very similar content. And he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, you Mm -hmm. want something, but you don't get it. And so guess what you do, then you kill. And so Mm -hmm. if we especially as men are going to have honesty with regard to our Unwanted sexual behavior, we have to see that a lot of the struggles that we're facing sexually are not just because of lust, but also because of anger. So let's say a spouse doesn't want to have sex with us. Uh, A lot of times that can be the very trigger that brings a man to look at porn later on that night or the next day. And so when you begin to hear him recount that story, he'll tell you that he's rejected. But far more, when you actually ask him to clarify, "Well, how did you feel in the midst of your rejection there 's a lot of rage there 's a lot of anger, and that yeah. anger has to go somewhere and I would say that 's one of the primary drivers of sexual brokenness is uh, anger and so just to understand that if you want to address and find healing in your sexual behavior you have to really understand both tributaries of the river of unwanted sexual behavior, which are lust and anger.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And how much of it actually is lust when the anger is really what's fueling it, you know? So you're saying mm-hmm. if you can learn how to properly deal with the anger, then how much of the lust is reduced?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I would also say that within lust, uh, lust it is not something to be fully dismissed. When you actually hear what people are lusting for, what they're coveting, there's a lot of dignity uh, to begin with. So it might be, well, I actually want to be more connected. Uh, it, it, lust isn't just what we're doing with uh, sex. Lust, I mean, I can lust to become married. I can also lust to not be married. I can lust to have children, I can lust to get rid of my kids and just have a weekend off, right? And so that, that sense of lust is like there. there's some desire there that really needs to be honored and needs to be blessed. Uh, but when that desire becomes kind of a, a tyrant, and it tells us that we have to be filled, we have to get the desires of our heart met, that's really where it goes into anger. But anger is also something to not fully dismiss. Anger is actually... It's like a radar for injustice. So if we have a radar system out and then we find ourselves angry, that's alerting us. It's a signal that something is not the way it's supposed to be. But if we use that anger to humiliate or to justify our sexual brokenness, we haven't actually honored that radar. So that's where I would say that there's something of the gospel that really offers us the antidote to lust and anger. You know, what does Jesus say? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Uh, Well, what does pornography offer to us? Come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you a realm where that will all go away. But the, right. the, the cross oh, yeah. also addresses my anger. So where am I supposed to take all of the heartache? Where am I supposed to take all of the cursing that's been done to me, by me, and by others? Where am mm-hmm. I supposed to take this anger that there is so much injustice in the world? Well, that's where mm-hmm. the cross says, I you know, bring it. The, the cross has reconciled all things. It, it has taken, mm-hmm. absorbed uh, the, the wrath. Uh, And so that sense of we go with our anger to the cross, but what does porn offer? Uh, I would say a very similar thing. Take all of your heartache, take all of your anger, take all of the injustice and make someone else be subordinate to you in your sexual fantasies. Get whatever you want, use them however you see fit, and that will atone for the sins Mm -hmm. of that day. And so I think that's that's really the core question for a lot of us Mm -hmm. is... You know, both porn and Jesus appeal to the deepest longings in the human heart. Only Mm -hmm. one offers freedom. Choose you this day who
0: you will serve. Mm Hmm. Yes. Yeah. That is so deep. So porn is um, it's it's a counterfeit for the cross and in dealing with emotions that are quite valid, right? Mm -hmm. And I know. I think about the greatest commandment you know love the lord your god and love your neighbor as yourself and it uh he didn't say it's a suggestion or you might want to think about this but uh if he says it's a commandment then we don't do it it's sinful and uh Mm -hmm. yes when someone sins against us and you you mentioned this i mean it it should produce some kind of feeling inside me Mm -hmm. when someone is behaving that way toward me and so you're talking about valid emotions that people are taking to a counterfeit uh, instead yes. of the the real solution is to the cross, right?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly.
0: For sure. And yeah, that brings me to this um, question here in part three of Unwanted. Uh, that's it's titled "How to How Do I Get Out of Here?" And just one of the things that I'd love it if you'd touch on uh, a bit of information. On the strategy, but specifically, I noticed that the last four chapters are about investing in community, right? And Mm -hmm. how is that a part of the healing process? Mm. So, going back to the nature of
1: shame, I cannot see my face. I know a selfie and Zoom now, we can see our faces. (laughs) Uh, But I need other people to be able to see my own story, to highlight things that I cannot see in myself. Uh, And so that's really the role of community is that if we're in isolation, we are going to make up a lot of lies and accusations about ourselves. Uh, But in community, when we begin to share our story, back to your point earlier, Michael, we begin to see that we're not terribly unique with the nature of the struggle, And so uh, many, many years ago, Amnesty International tried to do a, uh, they basically tried to give torture survivors free therapy. And they found that that program really failed. But what worked, they discovered, was that if you put uh, people who have survived torture into a group process and you begin to allow them to first hear other people's stories then they develop language for what they were experiencing and so I think that's true of all of us is that especially with an issue like sexual brokenness you you tend to think I, I'm just perverse you know I or I've, I've just been struggling with this so long I don't think that I'll ever be able to be free and then you start hearing that there's actually these key drivers that flow into why we do what we do. Uh, And then you start hearing someone talk about the rigidity of their father or how their mom was far more interested in having a clean house than actually attuning to their needs growing up. Or you hear another person talk about the role of sexual abuse, or you hear someone else talk about the heartache in their marriage. And then you're like, whoa, all of these other stories actually inform where I am. So that's what I'm really inviting people into. It isn't just to kind of deconstruct accountability, uh, but I really want and unwanted and have some other resources, online course, uh, and kind of groups that my ministry runs to really invite people to see that these issues are not random and to really get into a healing community where they can begin to process some of those untold stories in their lives. Because all of us have stories that we've never talked about before, Uh, both things that we've done, but more importantly, I would say, things that have been done to us. And once we get into a community where people are processing pain, that's where we're really going to find healing. So one Franciscan priest says, the pain that we do not transform, we transmit. Always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to. So in community, we really begin to process our pain together. And instead of transmitting that pain, we actually find grief. And that's, you know, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comfortable. And once men and women really begin to experience comfort from their heartache, from the misery, from the shame of their addiction, that's really where people radically change.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I remember you mentioned that in the book, um, the um, transmitting of, of our pain. And uh, that is so true. Uh, there's a book called Hurt People Hurt People, you know, mm-hmm. just as an example of the... Of, uh, yeah. Yeah the truth and just the, uh, uh, just the title of that book. And, um, yeah, I, I love that. The, the idea of accountability and that word is so misunderstood and overused and has been for decades. And so I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't want to open up that topic necessarily, but, you know, just to focus on what we really need, what we really need is a healing community. And you said that very, very beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you know, accountability isn't all wrong, but if accountability is primarily focused on check-ins because they received a bad report, that's not going to motivate you to do well. That's going to motivate you to hide and to view accountability or, or internet filtering as a type of fence that you're trying to get over and under, and then you know you're you're pursuing your sexual fantasy life, but in the background you know that your accountability partner is going to receive your your report. And so far more the role of community is to say, who are you? Uh, who do you want to become in this in this life that you have? And so when accountability is actually saying let's let's process your story let's understand your woundedness let's understand not just where you're powerless but also where you have agency and power and let's scheme for ways to be able to get you to find joy in life that's 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 true accountability so a, a couple oh, years right. ago I, you know had a client that basically told me you know essentially he said if my if my he kind of used this analogy of like, you know, look at the back, look at the backyard of my house. Uh, there are no weeds in it. Uh, I, I'm doing great job, kind of getting all the weeds out of my life. And I said, yeah, but your backyard is completely barren. Uh, there's nothing there. So you you've basically come with your gospel version of roundup, trying to eliminate <laughs> any weed in your life. And. You have dirt. Um, and, and just kind of asking him, inviting him to say, what if you grew a garden back there that you could actually eat food from, that you could learn certain things? And are there going to be weeds to pick along the way? Yes, but it's it's in the service of maintaining a, a beautiful garden. And I think that's the the approach of kind of Galatians 5. It's for freedom that you have been set free. It's not for managing that you have Amen. been set free. It's not for just always coming to fear your sexual life that you have been set free it's it's actually freedom Uh, and you can't say that you're free if you're always just worried uh, that you're going to struggle all the time and that you have to have all these things in place to prevent your your heart from being tempted you need to not just avoid triggers, you need to identify your triggers, understand the story embedded within them and then learn how to move through them. And once you're able to move through your triggers and not try and avoid them, it, you're on the journey to freedom.
0: Yeah, so true, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say this, um, what, what I said before I started, before I hit record and, and we started talking, I knew that, uh, Jay, I could talk to you for hours, man. Um, but, um, yes, we should cut it off here. And, uh, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a real pleasure. I really love, love talking to you, man. So thank you for having me, Michael.